Hey guys, welcome to the Miles Fit Transformation Show, an experience dedicated to your transformation on all levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and energetically. I'm Miles Kroll, your host, as well as the owner and founder of the Miles Fit Montreal Private Personal Training Studio. Tune in and listen up for this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Miles Fit Transformation Podcast, an audio experience dedicated to your transformation on all levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and energetically. My name is Miles Kroll, your host, as well as the owner and founder of the Miles Fit Montreal Private Personal Training Studio. Today, I'm joined with a very special guest, Dr. Amit Goswami, world-renowned quantum physicist and the author of many books in the field of quantum physics, such as The Quantum Doctor, Physics of the Soul, and The Self-Aware Universe. I have these good books near me all the time. And really a pioneer in the realm of something called quantum activism, which is an interesting component I'm looking into exploring today. We'll get into that a little later. But Amit, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So what I wanted to do is just start off with a little bit about your background. I did a little bit of an introduction, but I wanted to know how you actually got into quantum physics in the first place. Well, that is easy. I was a student of physics and every student of physics has to learn quantum physics because quantum physics is the physics uh, of physics paradigm of today's physics. So um, since I was a, a graduate student in physics, I had to learn quantum physics. But then the real question is what brought me back into quantum physics as basic meaning problems, because those are problems which are very specialized and people don't usually touch them because they're supposed to be blind alleys. In other words, nobody is supposed to know the meaning of quantum physics. Uh, nobody expected that there is a solution to the meaning question. So this question is hanging on for like since ever since quantum physics was uh, discovered, 1925-26. And people just gave up. Uh, they threw up their hand and said, nobody understands quantum physics. They were making the mistake that quantum physics cannot be understood within the philosophy that modern science has adopted, scientific materialism. Everything is matter. In that philosophy, it's impossible to understand quantum physics. So um, I had to overcome the big prejudice of everything is matter philosophy to eventually get through. Uh, so a lot of luck, coincidence, you know, mixing with uh, people who were transpersonal psychologists and really mystical people, spiritual people. That's what eventually, and a very open mind, I am grateful that I had it and still have it. Uh, that's how it happened. Excellent. So we're definitely living in the day and age of materialism. And I, can't, I can't hear you very well, Miles. Can you hear me? 
Uh, what happened to the hearing? Is it okay now? My my phone is uh, my uh, my I'm, uh, microphone is fully on. Can you hear me? Uh, I was hearing you just fine, but not anymore. Um, let me see. I think is it okay now or? Let me see if it's uh should be working. Oh, you're not hearing me. Can you hear me? You can't make it a little louder. I can hear you barely. Hmm. I'm trying to see. Okay, let's let's carry on. Okay. It uh should be okay. Is okay. It Can you hear me? Is it better now? Okay, continue. Continue? Okay, so I was saying that um, we're really living in the day and age of materialism. And I would say for the most part, people are ingrained in classical Newtonian physics. Um, for your average person who might not know what quantum physics is, could you give a little bit of a definition, general definition? Well, quantum physics um, started with the idea that uh, not only matter, but energy also consists of elementary particles. In other words, energy can be reduced only to a certain grain, and that grain was called quantum. That grain cannot be broken down any further. And this is a very technical point. I mean, for lay people, um, it don't make much of an impact of why the graininess of energy is such a big surprise. But for physicists it was, but the real surprise was five years later when Einstein pointed out that uh, light is a form of energy. Light is actually radiant energy. It's just a higher wavelength than what we ordinarily identify as radiation from the sun, infrared, heat radiation. So uh, his question was that, but light we know is a wave. And now we are saying light also consists of elementary particles, little grains. Grains, they behave very differently than waves. These little particles, they stay in put at a place where you put it. But a wave, you cannot put it at one place. As soon as you put it in one place, it starts spreading. So that basic characteristical difference is what people um, got alarmed, that we are dealing with objects which are very different from ordinary Newtonian objects that we have known until now. And that began the journey for finding out the mathematics. As soon as the mathematics was discovered, then it should have become clear that quantum objects are waves, period, because the mathematics were equations for wave objects. And then the real question was that how do the waves become particles when we measure them? But instead, the thing became very convoluted in the minds of physicists because they had the prejudice already that the world has to be built out of matter moving in space and time. Not only they had the prejudice of matter being the only thing, but also space and time being the only realm in which reality can happen. But if the quantum objects are waves that become particles only when we measure them, which is particles are in space and time, then where do the waves reside? 
there are waves of possibility. The master is in a domain that is different than the space and time. See the problem? And that, that is the real quantum physics. The real quantum physics is the physics of two domains. We are used to doing physics in one domain, which is Newtonian physics, but quantum physics is the physics of two domains. One is the domain of potentiality, where the waves behave very determined by their mathematics, but it only gives you possibilities, and then the possibilities are changed into actualities when we measure them. So that's the, the measurement problem is part and parcel of the whole physics of quantum physics. And that's the problem that physicists could not solve because they refuse to identify anything other than matter and material interaction. When I came into the picture, um, people were suggesting various schemes, but they all bogged down into paradox. I realized that if you uh, change the worldview of uh, physics to one in which you recognize that the uh, domain of potentiality where the waves reside is, is consciousness itself. In other words, waves are possibilities of consciousness to choose from. Then choice is what converts the possibilities into actuality and all problems are solved. So basically, this domain of potentiality, uh, aka the zone where these waves of possibility reside, is consciousness. Is that a fair definition? Yes, and that, is, that, is, that is actually a, um, uh, the big insight because, um, you know, otherwise there's just no solution. People were um, positing that there is consciousness, but they were positing uh, consciousness as a dualistic object. In other words, consciousness defines one realm and the other realm is space and time, but they were not saying that matter it consists of possibilities of consciousness itself. That was the big original insight where I became uh, identified as a mystic because that's what mystics say. Everything arises from consciousness. Okay, so everything arises from consciousness. So one of my questions for you right away is you have this domain of potentiality, which is consciousness, and then you have this world of matter and material objects. Are these objects also consciousness in their state of matter as well? Well, um, they are and they aren't. They are in the sense that they originated from consciousness, but as soon as they are here, then the question becomes that uh, there are objects which are purely objects and they cannot represent consciousness in them. Whereas there are other objects like living objects in which consciousness itself can be reflected, can be represented. So um, in that sense, part of the world becomes objects of consciousness. So the conscious control goes one step back. But the, but the living world, they are under conscious control still because the living world has a choice of now becoming conditioned, in which case they become Newtonian-like, machine-like, in which case they are again detached from consciousness. But the living world also has the choice of being creative when they become fully connected 
and then we are using the full force of consciousness in our being, in our behavior. So the challenge for the human being is to rise from the conditioning aspect, in which case we do become machine-like. Then materialists are not wrong. But we can, we have the potentiality of using new potentialities to change ourselves. And this is how we become human. A machine human is no human at all. That does not mean the machine part is not important. Machine part is very important because that's how we give form to the original ideas that consciousness gives us. But if we get lost only machine theory, that we won't be anything but condition, then we lost consciousness. We really don't have any more connection with the consciousness that is capable of giving us creativity and new potentialities. Very interesting. So I wanted to kind of um, speak back a couple of the things you said to make sure that I and the viewers and listeners are understanding correctly. The way I'm visualizing a little bit um, what you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have this domain of potentiality where waves reside, possibility. Then you have the world of Newtonian physics and the material reality. Then you have us, which we are these observers where we are both in these worlds simultaneously and we can fall on a spectrum where we might be miles. Yeah. Moving That's it. towards one world or more towards another world. That's correct. I think uh, there is a picture like that in the uh, Jewish Kabbalah. Adam Kadman is uh, pictured like that. One world in the world of God, one world in the world of matter, in between the human being stands. Yes. That is what quantum physics is saying, because we have access to the conditioning and the material aspects, the Newtonian aspects of reality, as well as through the subtle aspects, thinking, feeling, and archetypes, we can go into the quantum part of reality, and then we are into full uh, benefits of consciousness. Perfect. So you, you've confirmed my assessment of things. That's great. It's, it's really a beautiful picture that, that's been painted there. So we can really see ourselves, in a sense, as quantum and spiritual beings having an experience within the physical realm. Yes, that's it. And the creative experiences is, is what we should covet the most, because here is where the ego plays with the quantum self. Ideas are given by the, that quantum unity consciousness, and then they are given form by the ego. So here is the creative experience and manifestation of the creative experience is where the drama plays out in full. And this drama, which we experience as a flow, is also a source of immense happiness of human being. Right. So when we tap into our creative side and when we therefore tap into our flow state, we are more connecting to the quantum reality of things. Is that correct? Yes. And then sometimes I guess I think what can happen is as things are being created, the ego could perhaps mistake it for its own creation. Is that somewhat true? Well, the ego may think 
this is a huge problem, of course. The ego may think that what the ego has under its disposal, namely the existing memory, is enough to get by. So who needs consciousness? Goodbye consciousness. And it can form its own realm and be happy with that. That's the scientific materialist. You got it. Because then, then, then it's sufficient. It's certainly sufficient to carry on the, all the problematic world that we find and carry on this way forever without ever thinking of any creativity to guide us. Because we are at a technological place where machines can do some of this figuring out. Machines are helping a lot in terms of logical steps that we can take to develop technology. And this is what happens today. The big uh, creativity are all in the realm of the human, namely in the human, uh, in the realm of psychology, in the realm of biology and cognition, in the realm of consciousness. But where do you find any creativity in terms of finding, discover, uh, inventing new generations of cell phones? There isn't much. This, this kind of creativity people get very excited about. We are all shown pictures of how Google have these very creative people sitting around the table figuring things out. But they all more or less figure things out in the very uh, rational, logical, algorithmic way. They just know how to use all those algorithmic ways in a very smart manner. And this is why they are paid so highly and they lead to profits, which are so much. But uh, in truth, creativity is practically gone from the domain of scientific materialism, those scientists. You mentioned something before that I wanted to touch on. Um, when you were in Montreal this past summer doing a um, conference here, um, you said something that really resonated with me and you brought it up just now. The, the concept of the ego being formed by memory existing. Could you talk a little bit more about the ego and its relationship to the fact that we can remember things and memory? Uh, tell me the word again, evil, or e what is the word? Um, uh, I wanted to basically explore the idea that the ego uh, is formed and exists because of memory, the fact that- we uh, Ego, yes. Okay, yes. Um, the ego is basically a creation of memory. But it, how it is created is a little bit of a uh, little bit of, uh, takes a little bit of effort to understand. Um, ego has two parts. One part is the stuff that we learn. Stuff that we learn, that part is not fully memorized in the brain. The capacity of learning, capacity of learning, listen to the words carefully, that part which makes us, for example, a musician. A true musician has the capacity of playing music. That means that he can play any musical score as soon as he looks at it, right? Does not depend on which music is playing. Whereas I, Amit Goswami, can also play a few music, but only those few music which are learned. I don't have the capacity to play music. I have the capacity to do physics. Does not matter which problems I have done before. I can do a new problem as well. 
You see the difference when we learn to learn something, then we have the expertise of doing that irrespective of which context we are doing it. So that capacity of learning, once that is done, that capacity is non-local capacity. It does not, it's not memorized in the brain. It memorized beyond the brain. Mm. So this part is very interesting. That's what gives us the, what we call character. The ability of doing certain things in a specific way that defines Miles, that defines Samit, that defines any human being. Character. And in addition to that, we then make things complicated by developing various ways of how we use our character. We can use it in one way and a different way and still another way depending on the situation. In other words, we put on different masks in who we are in different situations. And those masks are called programs of personality. And then we, the ego, become the head honcho of these personality programs, the central processing unit kind of thing. And then we are very computer-like because we are just handling our programs. And we look at ourselves as handler of programs, no longer as the person who is a character, just a, a way of doing things. So how we change from the way of doing things, this learner of doing things, to this head honcho of a bunch of programs that I learn, that unfortunately is the story of the downfall of the ego, because the ego becomes inauthentic this way, the ego becomes a problem this way, and this is the ego we should minimize. Of course, some personality masks are essential, because um, you cannot completely let your hair down, as they say, in all situations. That's agreed. That's just simple survival. But we should try to keep it at minimum because as soon as we have done that, we become slightly inauthentic, not quite authentic to my character. Like, for example, my character may be a very honest person. But if I um, uh, interact with a dishonest person that I know is dishonest, may do me harm, then immediately I become cautious. So I'm hiding my character. Okay, you are dishonest, so I am also going to be skeptic. I'm not going to be this open-hearted, honest person. So I'm hiding the open-hearted part of me to interact with you. So I've become inauthentic already. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. That this inauthenticity uh, then interferes with our ability of contacting that unity consciousness that we talked about. So our ability of being quantum, being spiritual, being uh, creative is compromised by this ego persona, but not by the ego character. Ego character is the helper of the quantum self. When we discover something, it is ego character which has all these abilities and the, and the uh, reservoir of wisdom that comes with the abilities. That we covet. So when mystics say kill the ego, they don't mean that you kill the character ego. You kill the personality that is the ego as well. So on the note of minimizing and dissolving the personality ego, what are a couple practical ways that someone can go about doing that? I'm having a problem hearing you. <laughs> I don't know why. Say it again. 
Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, better now that I'm very close. I'm just trying to, it's, my audio seems to be on. Uh, let me just look. Built-in output, uh, microphone. Yeah, it's, it all seems to be on. You hear me? Yeah, I'm hearing you. Okay, try again. Yeah, so you can hear me? Yeah. Yeah, so I was just saying the, um, the uh, personality ego, which is the one that we would want to uh, dissolve or get rid of. What are a few ways that someone can work on getting rid of the personality ego? Yeah, it just basically meditate on mindfulness. Mindfulness meditation is to watch our behavior, how it changes in when we interact with different people in our environment, how it changes when we get emotional versus when we are in good mood. And as we, as we notice, uh, we notice our inauthenticity. And as we notice our inauthenticity, we eliminate. We bring our personality completely in line, in tune with our character. Then we are authentic. And how can people really know what their character is? Because I would think that some people... That is a very, very good question. Because we always overestimate our um, good qualities and underestimate our bad qualities. So that is the part of the discovery problem, which you also can do by being mindful when we do things. By being mindful, I can discover what my real character is. And then if I am authentic to that real character, I'll do good. But of course, the character elements also can be, uh, there can be some defects in that. And then it's not a personality problem, it's a character problem. How do we correct character problem? So I have to recondition myself. And for that reconditioning, the best thing that works is also the creative process. We, we change creatively. You raised a very important question here, Miles, because the point is that it's not all personality's fault. It can also be that I have, I have had some bad habit that I learned and like, eating sweets. Sure. No harm done uh, in certain sense, but carried to the extreme, it becomes enormous harm done to not only the physical body, but also to the mind, emotions, everything. Sugar affects everything. So in this way, we have a character pattern that is harming my bodies, physical, mental, emotional. And then, then it's a question of how do I get rid of this addiction to sugar? So in that way, there, there could be problems entering in both ways, not just the character, yes. So basically, if I'm understanding you correctly, the gateway to be able to start shifting these things first stems from a conscious awareness. Is that right? Yes. Conscious awareness, mindfulness of things that I am, so know thyself is not only know thy true self, unity consciousness, but also know thy ego, which is the way we have covered the unity consciousness. So one of the things that uh, I'm thinking about as you're talking is that as I, as a human being, try to have self-awareness and conscious, consciousness of myself, I'm filtering my perceptions, thoughts, and ideas 
through my ego matrix. So if that's true, could it be that perhaps working with a practitioner or someone outside of your ego matrix could be the real gateway to you acquiring some self-awareness? Could that be? Well, certainly another person who could be a teacher, could be a mentor, could be a psychotherapist, could be a guru. Yes, they're at the initial stages of uh, uh, making changes, transformation. It is very useful to have such a teacher. But, but, but teachers come from all areas of life. A friend can be a teacher, a lover can be a teacher, a parent can be a teacher, a child can be a teacher. So teachers are uh, found not only in professional ways, but also in regular living uh, situations. If we are open to being taught. In other words, a part of the uh, transformational training is also this openness, recognition, that everyone I interact with can be a potentially a teacher. Very interesting, because I find uh, in my own life, in my own journey, when you're experiencing anything and trying to get to know yourself, you're filtering your perception of self through your filters of your existing self. And it can become a little bit of a maze when you're trying to understand who you really are at the authentic level. Yes. And it is very useful. We do it uh, in our workshops all the time. We set people up around the table and then we create an event and then we um, choose somebody on the hot seat and that hot seat uh, describes the event and how he or she sees it. And then we give the opinion of the others of is, is he being authentic or is he just showing off in his comments. And usually people are amazed by the perception of all the others uh, who are perceiving the same thing, same event, but interpreting it differently and how they're interpreting the person in the horse seat, his or her interpretation. And that is the real eye-opener, how people see the same thing, interpret it for themselves, and how if another person interpreting it, how they see that interpretation. So <laughs> it's, it's really very, very important for us to be sensitive to how other people see things, how other people see us doing things, and uh, how we see ourselves doing things, and they can be kind of different. And then we have to ask, why is it different? And that teaches us a whole bunch. I think that's uh, in an environment like that, that's feedback that's very hard to ignore. So, yeah. yeah, feedback. And anybody who is close to feedback cannot change. You have to be open to be uh, open to the feedback that others are giving you. And others are giving us constant feedbacks. And this is the truth. We are here and we cooperate, collaborate with others in our lives. It is not just an individual living through, you know, uh, that, that image, individualistic image. It's very limited image. This is just not true. We grew up in a community and people are interacting with us and uh, who we are uh, can benefit greatly by being sensitive of how other people see us going through life. So I wanted to bring the conversation a little bit back for a moment to consciousness. So 
I wanted to know, does consciousness in its essence have an emotional charge or a positive energy? I'll explain what I mean by that. So in the world of duality, we have love and we have hate. We have two sides to the coin. I've heard some people talk about consciousness as being love, as being this emotional state. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, uh, love and a few other quantities like that, justice, truth, beauty, goodness, wholeness, uh, these things, abundance, power, uh, these things we call archetypes. That's the name that Plato gave them. They are the context of our highest thinking and also noblest feelings. So, and, and, and the, way to, the way quantum science looks at it is that they can take us closest to that unity consciousness. In the old language, I would say closer to God. These archetypes, therefore, like love, they are not God per se. They are not the consciousness per se. But they can take us closer to the, that consciousness which is completely infinite, expanded from our very narrow, constricted consciousness. So you know, we are always fighting this consciousness closing down on just me. You know, we have become very transactional today. What is in it for me is everybody's question before they under, undertake any task, right? And from that, we are asking for how to become inclusive, how I can love you, or I can be fair to uh, other people in my environment. Uh, this including, including others is a huge challenge. It's a challenge for economics, it's a challenge for politics, it's a challenge for all of our social systems, including others. How do I do that? If I am just a scientific materialist model of myself, a machine, then obviously I don't even know about the others in any kind of conscious way. So it's just mechanistic, my relationship with others. But if I do know about others, if I do cognize that others as others like me, people with experiences, people with some causal power, people with aspirations, people with hopes, then we should be able to take them into account when I act, do my thing. And that taking them into account is what I call expansion of consciousness, when you become inclusive. I take not only my interest before I do something, but I also take into account your interest. Will this harm you? Not just will it harm me. Will this profit me? Not just that, but will it also profit you? So in that way, I become inclusive, taking care of another person, not just taking care of number one, me. So this is a major, major task. And we do this by becoming um, aware that there is this unity consciousness, which is in the background. And if we remove certain barriers, we will get into touch with it. If we learn to be creative, we will get in touch with it. If, and that is the process of transformation that we undertake. So on that note, we live in a world where there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of challenges going on. And these are all things that our mind and our ego gravitate towards and become involved in. And we almost get trapped 
in this world of the uh, ego. So it's very hard for humanity to be able to break away from that and touch into creativity. Because when you're in a sympathetic nervous system dominant state, when you're yeah. in this fight or flight mode, when you're thinking about me versus we, it's hard to be a conscious and creative being. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is very sad that the brain is built in such a way that we immediately invoke the sympathetic nervous system because the emotions get involved with our identity, with our ego interest, and that is indeed a very sad story that this negative emotional brain circuit which activate this sympathetic nervous system and the hormones of the body um, and um, create stress. If we are handling um, things in a way that is basically uh, experienced as negative. So the whole challenge then is, uh, you know, the behavioral challenge is to um, compensate the damage to the sympathetic nervous system by activating the parasympathetic. Those are the things that we talk about. Well, meditation can do that, and yoga can help you with that, and so forth. But those are just technical aspects. The real problem is to remove the problem itself. Right. How can I let myself not be stressed? And for that, we have to somehow eliminate parts of, at least the parts of the uh, whole circuit, the whole uh, primitive ways that the brain is built into. You know, the brain has a forebrain, which is not primitive, but then it has a primitive part in the midbrain, and that part is where the amygdala, that is what the actual apparatus is called, brain apparatus, where all these emotional responses are built in. And so I see something, um, and then I respond in a certain way. If that something is real tiger or real snake, then of course the response is quite legit, and I should run away, or if I could, fight, that's very appropriate. And this is something needed for survival. But the point is, in our modern life, where is the snake and tigers? They are not real snakes and tigers anymore. They are people, they are people. They are like our bosses. They are like a scorned lover. They are like a friend that I don't like. And that's what produces us stress. Because the reaction that our brain gives is as if they are tigers and snakes. So the, the, the remedy of this is to uh, compensate that negativity that we have towards people, unforgiving attitude towards people. Why don't I like my boss? Because the boss uh, controls some of my tendencies of ignoring some things. Okay, I mean, I'm not justifying any boss behavior, mind you. But some bosses are just stern. And then we have to recognize that I do need discipline. I don't have to violate the boss's wishes all the time. After all, the boss is paying me. And if I'm sincere about the getting paid and doing the job, then I will keep my part of the contract, right? Then I, have, I don't have to be afraid of the boss because boss, boss is so hard to handle. That hardness to handle comes from my attitude towards the boss, attitude towards the job. So, you know, these attitudinal changes are very important for stress management. How do they happen? They happen by um, cultivating positive emotions. 
if we learn to treat people in a good way rather than react to people in the way of this negativity that is built into us that tries to defend us versus them. Us versus the mentality creates this basis for distress, that this is an enemy. Instead, we create the picture that no, human beings are potentially all part of the unity consciousness and we don't have to look at them as enemy, as competitors. Instead, we can look at them as objects, potentially all capable of love. If we change the perspective this way, then stress is a goner. There is no room for stress, right? Right. So it seems that the reason that all of these challenges are manifesting in the world, if you boil it down to the fundamental level, really is from us as human beings separating from a unity type of consciousness. Yes. So the, 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 the problem really is that we become separated and then back to unity. So transformation is a journey from this separation that we create, first of all, by necessity. Part of the separation is necessity because um, otherwise who would we be? If we are unity consciousness, then we'll be... Oops. Sorry for the interruption. No problem. It's my phone which is ringing. That's all right. And I don't, ah, it's in my pocket. <laughs> the last place you always look. I will turn it off into the silence mode. Okay. Okay, please ask the question again. I have lost the thread. Um, I was just saying that it seems that the fundamental cause of all of the quote-unquote challenges and problems in the world stem from, first and foremost, a separation of unity. Yes. Now, the interesting thing about that, you mentioned before that separation is also a necessity. Um, in the creative process, the ego does play a role because without yeah. the ego and without the being, like you said, we would just be consciousness in its purest state. But where would be the physical expression? There has to be a, a dance between the non-physical and the physical. But it seems like that dance can sometimes go too much to one extreme. Yes, that is all true. But what I was saying, uh, let me finish that thought, that is the part of the brain. The brain uh, manifests a representation of consciousness in us. This much is very clear. The quantum possibilities collapse with the brain also in the process, and the consciousness identifies with the brain. That's how we acquire a self. But this self, if we could experience it, we find that this self is no self because it's just a momentary experience. There's no place to stand there. It does not repeat. This self is forever new, moment to moment. Okay, imagine yourself. Moment to moment. Can you be moment to moment? Mystics talk like that, but can they even be moment to moment? No, even they cannot be moment to moment. They cannot be in the present moment all the time. That would be impossible. It's impossible to stand on the quantum self. 
this is in the dynamics how it works out is that the brain has to have a cognition apparatus as well as a memory apparatus in order to make a representation of consciousness and until that memory apparatus gives us sufficient amount of who i am so that i have security i really cannot have an experience where i is also a me which gives me that security in other words i if until i built up a little bit of a history i don't have any place to stand on that i can call me that consciousness that is unity consciousness is no place for an individual individual is not born yet it's too cosmic for me to be secure in it you see the problem so the brain develops this memories the history of who the being is and then only we have a really a, a collapse of the possibilities in which i am an i the experiencer and also a me who has a past history so that i can be secure in my experience i can dare to have the experience and say that it is my experience this is exactly what we find in the human babies i don't know if you are a father miles but um if you watch a baby uh, take an opportunity to watch a friend's uh, little baby and you will see that there is no being there until the baby is 1 year old there is no self there baby is very spontaneous but there is no self in the baby there's a little bit of self that is just growing first in relation to the mother only then in relation to the few other people whom this uh, baby sees regularly and then gradually the baby get a, gets a feeling that yes there is a me here and then only the baby really becomes a little bit of communicable in that way before then the baby really does not have any any semblance of an ego i mean this has been experimentally verified a very um, uh, young baby cannot identify itself on a, in a mirror but a one year old can identify itself in a mirror so it already has a sense of okay i am this body i am this mind so this kind of thing is going inside the baby based on what based on the history okay i have this memories that makes me this this person i respond to this name this is my parents in this way this is the house i live in that way the baby gets gets to be babe gets to be a self ego self so quantum self at once is wonderful but quantum self certainly is no place where we can have this kind of uh security of being me again we find that the mechanism is not bad because this mechanism is necessary because security survival these things are basic part of uh, otherwise who do we be this is why rabbi hillel i love his statement of ethics if i am not for myself who am i if i am only for myself what am i so who am i question really is that i have to be for myself i have to be for the me because otherwise who am i i have no place to stand on i cannot just say i'm a cosmic consciousness you know like some mystics do but that is a very uh, idealistic statement we cannot be that we really have to recognize that to live in the world 
we really have to have a me where I'm secure. This is me. Right. And that acknowledgement has to be there too. It is, it is easy to conceptualize being a cosmic being, but it is not easy to be one. Because you imagine it to, you, you are solved to be one, and you find that, how do I live like that? So there is a, um, there is a cognitive problem here, which when we address it, then we recognize that, aha, so there is, uh, the, build, build, the way the brain was built, it has logic in it. It has to be this way. Otherwise, there would be no people-to-people -people interaction. Nobody would know where they are, where they belong. There is no home. Okay? So, so in other words, the spiritual words that describe this kind of spiritual journey in terms of, oh, I have found my home, it's that unity consciousness is my home, they're also exaggerating a little bit. Unity consciousness, yes, it's the home for people who, are, who don't need the security anymore. It's the home for very few people who uh, do not need anymore. They have become bored with life as it is, as an ego. But for the rest of us, this is our home. This ego is the home. It's not that unity consciousness is the home. Unity consciousness is something that we glimpse occasionally. We play with it to be creative, to renew our home, to make more dynamic, the home more dynamic. But it is the ego that is the home. So with the ego being the home, and us trying to improve the world and make the world a better place. Um, I wanted to bring up transformation for a moment, us transforming. I know uh, if I understood correctly, your quantum activism type of philosophy or program really starts with the individual transforming themselves and being the change that they want to see in the world. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, here is the point that we already have touched upon. Bad character, good character versus bad character. So we, of course, we need to change because there are ways that we react to the world. Like we talked about a boss or a friend who has gone out, with my, uh, out of tune with me. We don't have to look at them as stressful. If we do, then that's a part of the character that I need to change. So this changing is, the, is, the, is, is now doable because we now know the quantum process involved with changing. We know the creative process. We, we know what we are going to change, the way we think about the world, the way we feel about the world, what we intuit. We are going to reduce the importance of the sensory world on us. Uh, and go beyond into um, getting happiness from the expansion of consciousness instead of happiness from pleasurable items of molecular happiness where the brain chemicals and the body hormones are the players, not me. So um, there are many ways that we can make this transformation. But the most important thing is to turn inward and yet, it's not completely as what mystics used to say. Mystics would say that turn inward completely, ignore the world completely. We don't say that. That is also not optimal because the world is our home. And therefore, we have to remember that constantly. 
So we venture out into the quantum realm. We venture out into creativity. We interact with the quantum self. We play with quantum self in flow some of the time. But we also enjoy other times. We are in our ego and we enjoy what we accomplished this way. So some of the things keep from the scientific side, some of the things keep from the spiritual side. This is what I mean by integration of science and spirituality. And in the note of the uh, creative process and creating, what, what yeah. I've seen in my life, in my own personal life, in the lives of some of the greatest creators who have ever walked the face of the earth, is that for almost everyone, it would seem unanimously across the board that there has been some type of element of suffering in one's life that has led to a series of events of creation on a grander scale. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, suffering in the context of creation. Yeah, uh, suffering is very important. Uh, I must admit that I myself got from the got into the transformative life, uh, not creativity per se, but transformative life coming from suffering. Um, this is often true. I mean, I have really encountered, met very few people who uh, come from the curiosity side. I mean, we could be just curious about it. But generally speaking, so far in history, because we didn't know what is going on, like part of the reason is that we really did not know what is going on. Because the mystics say some things which does not jive with ordinary people. They really talk about a very idealist situation which fits only a few people who are ready for mysticism, who are ready to live life as they feel. They don't feel home anymore in their ego. They feel something is missing. So they want to find they are another home, the cosmic home, which they call their real home. But you have to be there. Generally speaking, people are in their home here, and they're pretty comfortable, and um, therefore they don't hear the mystic's uh, message. On the other hand, there is the scientist who is saying, Newtonian scientist who is saying, no, just stay here. This is your home and there is nothing else. All those things are just imaginations of kind of mystical people. So this is the world we live in, world depolarization, one side, other side. Now, when we change from this, um, what gets us to change? This is the question you are asking. So I think it, is, it would be very nice if we could just be curious about, okay, what are the mystics saying? Let's just investigate. But we don't do that because the mystical language is, is so foreign to us. Give up the ego, give up your accomplishments, you know, be interested only in that unity consciousness, give up pleasure, give up, you know, give up, give up, give up. We don't like to hear that so much. And so uh, we don't go that route. But when suffering happens, when you are really suffering pain, mental or physical, then it becomes different. This is what happened to me. I was just not getting anywhere in my pursuit of life. My life became so out of joint that my living, my livelihood, um, my thinking, there was no synchrony in any of them. So I uh, really started in agony 
cried out practically, and then the response from the cosmos was, okay, why do I live this way? I had that thought at a conference in, 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 in nuclear physics where I was talking. And the uh, whole day I was very jealous of other people. I didn't give so much of a good talk, etc. insecurity and all that. And real agony, real suffering, whole day, 24 hours. I mean, was, the day started at 9 o'clock. I'm talking about 1 o'clock in the morning. So uh, at that time, all of a sudden, this thought comes. Why do I live this way? Why do I live this completely unwholesome way? There's no wholeness in it. Everything is disjointed. Everything is out of joint with each other. So how do I get back some synchrony, some wholeness? That became the outcry. And I realized that I don't have to. That conviction also came at the same time. So I guess uh, many people start this way, that the suffering and then uh, consciousness response. And um, that response will be in the form of something of a conviction that, yes, I can change, and that produces changes much faster. Um, if we are on the uh, curiosity side, that's the, uh, that's the creative process. Curiosity is part of the regular creative process. If we are curious, then we investigate, and we start the creative process right away. If we are going from the suffering side, then we have to find, discover, um, it takes a while what we want to do. And uh, it's the creative process we don't engage immediately. We look for a while about what is there, we gauge the situation, this is more what happened to me. And then eventually I found the kind of physics that I can do, which will lead me to a new kind of life. And uh, it happened. So I have a question about suffering. Could, could one say, and this is what I'm curious, could we say that suffering could be a creation of consciousness to act as our own mirror, to see ourselves in a certain way, to be able to connect more to what we really are? Yeah, I know that that is a um, common wisdom that indeed uh, suffering is the creation of consciousness. But I think we have to be, um, we have to be a, a, a bit more careful in understanding whose consciousness. It is not, suffering is not, does not come from the unity consciousness, no. That is where sometimes we get a misleading message. Mm -hmm. But the suffering is my own creation. I, myself, you see what I'm getting at? I myself is never completely detached from the expansion I'm capable of. I am, after all, the reflection of the totality. I am the whole consciousness. I just have forgotten it. I have put a whole bunch of sheets around me, which enables me to forget that I am really that full of potentiality, that unity consciousness also. I operate very little in that consciousness. I operate most of the time in this very individual, very constricted consciousness. But nevertheless, I am that. So it really, when we say that consciousness is choosing, it's really choosing the intention is from me. I am intending somewhere deep in my 
not maybe not may not be very conscious but deep in my being i am intending that i want to change and this is when the only way that i could change is to create such two by fours to hit me with that i will recognize and the best two by four is suffering so you're saying if i'm understanding you correctly that suffering itself is not a direct creation of unity consciousness it's creation of us it's creation of us and consciousness grants our wish well, there is a law of consciousness if there is intention coming from the ego and the intention is authentic then consciousness will respond according accordingly consciousness will respond in agreement with you this is how things happen for example you intend to recall a memory you'll find that you are immediately recalling it how did it become so easy because your intention is authentic intention very interesting very interesting so you talk, <laughs> yeah. you talk intentions have a huge role to play in the quantum way of looking at things because really you know we are a huge organism but how do we control it i mean we don't feel any control we are not really a central processing unit although in in we play that role in our persona being but we really are not that even the persona how do we handle the various programs we just intend so intention is a very powerful word in the new science that we are developing of course intention by itself is not enough intention followed up by creative process is much better but intention begins the process and does intention come from the brain or does intention <laughs> that's the thing intention comes from us and intention also drives us towards the new so intention is a very interesting uh, aspect of ourselves we have this capacity this freedom to choose and then we begin with an intention and not sure at all that we are able to choose it and then somehow we become in synchrony with the movement of consciousness and then consciousness goes along with the choice because all choice ultimately is from the unity consciousness from the unconscious this quantum physics is absolutely sure of this is a scientific idea it has been verified so um, uh, the ego really does not have any control over that intention that that way that consciousness will choose ultimate chooser it's always the unity consciousness but a, a, a law of the universe seems to be built in in the laws of consciousness which is that the consciousness will go along with those intentions that have which are in synchrony with the movement of consciousness so the way then for us to act is to become more synchronous with the movement of consciousness as far as we can tell of course movement of consciousness is not that simple all the time like in the case of suffering it it is not at all clear but still we try our best and that trying our best we sometimes choose situations which produce intense suffering but we come out okay but not always some sufferings we don't come out okay so that tells you that suffering is not alone is not the issue but suffering is can be a factor in creating something good as well 
it's not always bad. And if we were talking about accessing consciousness, um, I know a lot of people have some theories about how we do that. Um, some people talk about intuition as being another level of consciousness or uh, awareness. Could one say, and I'm curious about your opinion on this, that, that the heart in a way is, is a receiver of consciousness? Is that fair to say? The heart is a uh, very interesting uh, entity. I had a lot of misgivings about it, but gradually I looked into it and then discovered that, yes, there is a scientific explanation of the heart chakra in the form of the immune system. Uh, you know, immune system is a bit distributed. It's not exactly in the heart, but the thymus gland is part of the immune system. And then the rest of the immune system is a little bit lower, creating a lot of confusion. But really, the heart uh, has to be recognized as the uh, behavior of the immune system. It has to do with the function of the immune system, not the physical heart, which is just a pump. So as soon as you have shifted the attention to immune system, whose job is to distinguish between me and not me, then uh, we realize why heart is connected with love. Because as soon as the distinction goes away, if um, we we're talking about this earlier, when I lose the distinction between me and you, then I'm including you in my consciousness. So that, that suspends the immune system. So love is a mutual suspension of the immune system of both of us. So uh, what does that tell us? It, it tells us that the immune system could have a self like the brain because the brain is the only other system in the body which also needs periodic uh, suspension, namely deep sleep. That's when the brain is mostly inactive. The neocortex just sleeps. So in this way, we begin to understand that we have, actually there is another system, the gastrointestinal system also is like that because we periodically fast. We don't always keep it busy. Um, keeping, it busy keeping the digestive system busy all the time is surefire way of getting disease. Mm. So three systems in the body, they're all autonomous, they all need rest, and this is the key. So I went from that and then little brains were discovered in the uh, heart and in the navel chakra where the digestive organs are. And now I'm convinced that these three places, all three places, not only the brain, but also in the heart and also in the navel, we have a self. So when we say heart, we are really talking about experiencing real feelings in the heart, which is we call experience of love. So whereas the brain experience is mainly thinking, which separates. The experience of the heart is love, which includes. And therefore the cognition, when we have both love, the self and the heart active and the brain active, then it's perfect because the brain gives us the ego, which wants to separate, and the love brings us to the quantum self, which wants us to unite. And then if we learn to play with this, we can have a wonderful flow between the heart and the brain. Yeah, because there's more and more people talking today about the importance of the heart. Uh, as yes. a yeah, women, I must tell that we have to acknowledge the fact that women have always talked about the heart and kept us 
men interested in the heart to a minimal extent that now we are understanding the science of the heart. And the science also, like you said, of the navel of the gut brain as well. Yes, that took place a very important role. Yes. So I guess one of my one of my last questions is, you know, in this physical realm of consciousness being uh, expressed in a different dimension, so to speak, um, what what in your opinion have, have, do you think is really the purpose of life? I I couldn't hear the last part. I just asked you what what do you think is the purpose of life? The purpose of our existence in the physical plane. Hard to tell about the future, <laughs> but my belief is that we'll go we'll go through this very uh, dangerous times that uh, is taking place right now almost everywhere. Um, world view polarization, economic breakdown, um, healthcare breakdown, democracy being threatened by dictatorship. Uh, global climate change, terrorism, those problems too. So it is very hard to be optimistic for many people, but I believe that the world never has completely lost touch with the movement of consciousness because there are these spiritual creative people uh, such as you and me and many others. Uh, calculation is showing that maybe even 50 million that's huge so we have large number of people who are not persuaded by the separatist philosophy not detach themselves from the potentialities of the unity consciousness and so we have a special responsibility now this is where i have become a quantum activist i want to bring this urgency feeling of urgency i want to bring that feeling that suffering gives us Suffering is, uh, works better than curiosity because suffering creates urgency. Curiosity does not create an urgency. Mm -hmm. So we have to similarly really create an urgency because we really need to change this. Certain things are already started which are really, really disastrous, like global warming, like the terrorist mindset, like the economic meltdown. These are really, really disastrous, like getting rid of democracy. These are disaster for humanity. People have no idea what they're getting into. The feudal lifestyle. I cannot imagine myself being told all the time what I have to do and doing it. There is no choice. Otherwise, I would just be dead. The choice is between survival and death. I cannot imagine. You cannot imagine what life used to be like in those feudal times. So really, people uh, who are seeking uh, refuge in dictatorships, they don't know what is what. But the alternatives that our politics is presenting is also not very good. They are also uh, elitist, and so people are desperate to come out of that kind of elitism as well. So quantum worldview is giving us a hope, a future. And if we could be activists and establish the worldview, or at least uh, bring it to fore for enough people to make a difference, I think that will change the world from this very, very materialistic to a fairly idealistic one in which we can um, have a future, we can evolve again.
to the next phases of evolution. I'm convinced that this will happen very soon. I'm convinced that within the next few decades, this is going to happen. And the way the quantum worldview is um, getting traction, I am really very hopeful. It is, um, you know, I started the movement in 2009. Initially, it was just uh, a few of us. Uh, people would be writing to me. But then, you know, my Facebook page started increasing in uh, approval and all this, whatever you call it, Facebook fans. And so I developed some 75,000 members in my Facebook page, which is uh, quite a good number. And then I realized, oh, something is happening. A movement is really taking place. And then all of a sudden, we get enough friends together to start this University of Transformation transformative education in India and a quantum activism movement that is very popular in Brazil. So there are several things that are indicating that the worldview change is not very far off. Um, the quantum worldview is in place. It can integrate science and spirituality and more and more people find, about, find out about it. If they're capable, then they should embrace the idea of transforming. And as they transform, so will the world. I'm convinced of it. And your quantum activist program, you mentioned that it's being implemented currently at a university? Yes, it, it is now a part of a university, Quantum Activism Vishalayam, we call it. Uh, it is, all the information is my, in my website, amitgoswami.org, A-M-I-T-G-O-S-W-A-M-I dot org if you look at that website you'll find a page where information will be available about this university that we are building in india it's already operational we have our first batch of students and the second batch will start next january 2020 and if you were to just summarize what the program does for people like if i if I go through this program, it makes me more of an aware being. I'm more connected to my side of creativity. In terms of my transformation, how is it transforming me? Well, mine's in short, very, very short. Um, the idea is to integrate your thinking, worldview, integrate how you live so that living become congruent with how you think. And then the most ambitious part of it is to how to bring your way that you make your livelihood, how you make your living, that synchronous, that congruent with how you think and how you live. So we want that thinking, living, and livelihood completely in synchrony to eliminate the stress that is really killing us, both economically, but also health-wise, mental health-wise, every which way. It is the conflicts between our thinking, living, and livelihood, that is the most problematic. So yes, it has much spiritual um, concepts, much spiritual techniques that you use for the transformation, but the goal is, the minimal goal is to integrate your thinking, living, and livelihood. And then we start from there. Of course, then we uh, completely ask uh, all questions of, transformation like emotional intelligence, even intuitive intelligence. So we do talk about you know, growing happiness. We have a ladder of happiness that we have developed, a scientific ladder of happiness. And then we talk about how to go up that ladder all the way maybe to enlightenment. 
Um, we talk about intelligence similarly in a dollar-like fashion from the basic intelligence that people have called IQ intelligence, from that to mental intelligence, creative intelligence, from that to emotional intelligence, from that to supra-mental intelligence, which is intuitive intelligence. So we talk about it in many different ways, but it all starts with first integrating thinking, living, and life. If one can accomplish that, we hope that that can be accomplished very well within even the first year of the, of the course. It's a two-year master's course first and then PhD another two to three years. Uh, and the very first year, uh, it's amazing. We have one semester that was finished by our students and how many of them have already gotten the hang of it, the, um, the start of it. Uh, and so we are very, very pleased about the feasibility of this thing. It really can be done, Well, This is very exciting. Yeah, it, it sounds like a great program, and uh, you must be very proud to have this as a mission to be able I to... I feel good. I feel good. Yeah, that's great. I mean, someone's got to help proliferate this new way of being and this new way of living and this new way of coexisting uh, within unity, but also within the material realm. Yes. Well, I mean, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to be able to share your thoughts, insights, and ideas about consciousness, quantum physics, and more importantly, the practical application in the real world. Um, it was lovely talking to you, and I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Hey guys, thanks for listening in to the Miles Fit Transformation Show. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and took a lot of value from it. And hopefully it serves as the catalyst for your transformation on another level. Be sure to go find Miles Fit on all social media platforms. We're on Instagram at Miles Fit. You can find us on Facebook by searching Miles Fit. We have Snapchat as well our great website blog at milesfit.com and you can sign up for our newsletter as well there so guys again thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for more shows